the congregation, I'd like to now turn your very prayerful attention to that second passage that I read to you in your hearing there in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians. We read chapter 5 and chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. And wishing to take for my text two very simple yet profound verses that are found in the 6th chapter, verses 1 and 2, where Paul The Apostle is writing to this church for the second time by the Spirit of God. He says, We then as workers together with him, that is Christ, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's these two verses that I want to garner our thoughts around this morning with the Lord's help. Just say a few things by way of introduction this morning. The Apostle Paul is not giving his own thoughts, his own ideas here. The Apostle Paul is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All scripture, we are told, is given by inspiration of God. We're told that in 2 Timothy 3.16. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be truly furnished unto all good works. Peter makes very plain that what the Apostle Paul says in all of his epistles are holy scripture. If you just turn there with me to Second Peter chapter three, verse fifteen, he says there, and very often this is missed, but it's important we see it. Because we need to come to this passage here in Second Corinthians with that knowledge that this is actually the Word of God. This is not merely Paul's thoughts. And often what Paul has written by inspiration of the Spirit has often been rested, has often been twisted by many. He says in Second Peter 3.15, An account that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also... In all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to be understood. Now notice, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures. So it's quite plain in what Peter is saying there when he says, as they do also the other scriptures. He is including Paul's words as scripture. I hope we see that. As they do also the other scriptures. So Peter is affirming this unequivocally. That what Paul writes here is holy sacred scripture. And what was needful here. God has been pleased to preserve on record. For us. What was needful to the church there at Corinth. Is needful for us and for every church. Of the living God. Because all scripture is profitable. And all scripture will furnish us to all good works that we may be profitable. So this is a needful word. I particularly want to take these two verses this morning. Now what is the setting of these verses? In what time do these things take place? Well, the Apostle Paul first visited Corinth somewhere around 50 AD on his second missionary journey and he was there for some 18 months if you recall you may look there in Acts chapter 18 we have the account of that he was there for some 18 months 
and he came against great opposition in that city of Corinth. It was an idolatrous place. It was a place of great immorality and evil. And it was predominantly a place filled with idols, Gentiles, there were Jews there, and there were, of course, there at Corinth, the great temple of Venus, the Greek goddess. And it's believed there at Corinth, some of the ancient writers tell us that there were well over a thousand so-called sacred prostitutes in that city. Now, can you imagine anything more to be an oxymoron, a sacred prostitute? These things done in the name of religion. We can't imagine how evil the place must have been, how grieved Paul's heart must have been. And we have to say the world has always been an iniquitous place. And there have been times of great iniquity, great immorality. We know that even Rome at that time, just a little after when Mount Vesuvius erupted, (coughs) that uh, the Italians were so ashamed of the paintings and the artifacts that were destroyed when they were discovered after that. They were too ashamed to put some of those paintings in their museums even today. The world is a sinful place. The world is an immoral place. Well, anyway, while Paul was there for some 18 months, and during that time he faced great opposition, and he was very vexed in his spirit. The Jews and the Gentiles opposed him, but God came to him by night. You may wish to turn there in Acts 18, verse 7. It says, And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord and with all his house. And you can imagine what a fuss that must have made. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. And then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by vision. Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. You see, the Lord had a great number of elect there to be saved, and many were brought in, and the church was strengthened, and there was a great man there, an eloquent man by the name of Apollos, who was mighty in the Scriptures, a very able preacher, an eloquent man, and uh, well, the church grew, and that man stayed. Paul left after 18 months, but it wasn't so long after that the trouble began to creep into the church, and men started to pride themselves in various preachers. When Paul is writing this now, and even when he writes in 1 Corinthians, Apollos is with him, there at Philippi. We're told at the end of the first epistle, Apollos was with him in chapter 16. Apollos was privy to the various factions and schisms that were at the church. Some were saying, I'm of Paul. Some were saying, I'm of Apollos. Some were saying, I'm of Peter. Paul had to remind them that Christ is not divided. They were priding themselves in their preachers. And yet they were taking their eyes off the whole reason for the church. The reason for the church is God has called us, the ecclesia, out of this world to be a holy people, to be a separate people. It wasn't about numbers. It wasn't about the preachers. They were called to be a holy people. In fact, the church was in such a terrible state. We as a church at the moment are studying in 1 Corinthians. 
And it's been a good 10 years since I preach here from 2 Corinthians, but I feel the Lord has laid upon my spirit a message here for us this morning. But the church was in such a bad state that they were entertaining most terrible things at the church at Corinth. There was a man that had taken his father's wife, perhaps it suggested his stepmother, and the church were turning a blind eye to this. The man even sat at the Lord's table and uh, he should never have been there. They should have judged within themselves. There was also another problem at the church at Corinth. They were taking each other to the law courts. He said, dare we, dare we take a brother to the law courts. Chapter 6. So all of these things were taking place. And the church now has to be corrected. This man, Apollos, is with Paul. Paul tells us in the end of the first epistle that he doesn't want to go back at the moment. He doesn't feel it's right. So there's this pride in the church. And then there were those who, who claimed to be apostles. They weren't really apostles. Paul said, you saw that with me, the signs and wonders of the apostle were amongst you. And it was undoubtable that Paul was a true apostle, one that had seen the risen Lord Jesus and who had been given extraordinary gifts authenticating that office. But there was this pride and there was this party spirit and there was this worldliness. And that some, as you read in that previous chapter, in the close of chapter 6, There's a hard admonition to this church. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. There were perhaps some who were marrying unbelievers. Now, of course, if you're married, Paul will explain in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if the Lord saves you and you're already married, you stay married with that person. But as a believer, you don't go and marry an unbeliever. What fellowship has light with darkness? What concord? we have with Belial. The word Belial can mean emptiness, vanity, and so on. So things have lapsed in the church. That's the whole sense of these epistles. And Paul has to write again following the first epistle. Now it seems that I have corrected this brother that had been committing this terrible sin of adultery with his stepmother. Things that have to be put right. But still, there are many issues to be dealt with. Again, even the false teachers. Now, as Paul comes here and we come to the immediate context, things are not right with this church. They were not, in a sense, although they were saved. And uh, one of the reasons I want to deal with verses 1 and 2 this morning is that you may hear today many who lift these verses out of complete context of their meaning. And it's a very sad day. We've got young men entering into theological seminaries and uh, they're being trained to preach the word of God. And yet it's become very fashionable today, even amongst many of the modern evangelicals. Well, if you can just find a text, well, that'll be an evangelistic text for you to preach on. And we are never given license as God's ministers to take a verse out of context and to apply it to mean something entirely different. Because what we end up doing is robbing the truth where it belongs somewhere else. It's like robbing from Peter, as it were, to use a phrase, to give to Paul. And that is wholly wrong. And this is where we see the church suffering today. So much 
focus is given to evangelism. Now I'm all for evangelism. I seek to go out every week and to preach the word of God to lost people. But I will not. I refuse to take verses that are meant for Christians and then apply them to the unbeliever. Because I would be robbing you. And I know your dear elder would be doing the same. And I'm sure he'd be in agreement with me on what I'm saying this morning. Now I want you to notice the church is not right with God. And Paul has to address the church and he, he says to them how they are to be reconciled to God. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, verse 20 of chapter 5. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Now we know for sure that these people are saved. He tells us that, doesn't he, in, uh, well, 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians. He begins 2 Corinthians by addressing them in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints, which are in Archaea. And then in verse 8, he says, we would not brethren. These are believers. The epistle is given to believers. Paul is writing to those who have been quickened by the Spirit of God. Those that have been born again. Those who are, as he says, as even as we have read in chapter 5 verse 17. Therefore if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. All things are of God. Who hath reconciled us to himself. You see, it's God who did the reconciling of himself to his people. But there is a sense in which the believer... And have moments of his life where he is not reconciled to God. In terms of our fellowship with the Lord. In terms of our walk with God. And this was the case at Corinth. Paul on this occasion at the end of this epistle. You notice in the postscript he says. The second epistle to the Corinthians. It says from Philippi. The city of Macedonia by Titus and Lucas. Titus and Lucas were bringing this letter back. In the first occasion. Four other men went back with a letter, Stephanus, Fortunatus, Archaeus, and Timotheus. But here, just two men now. He's already sent a delegation of men. Things aren't right with the church. Apollos won't come back at this moment in time. And there is increasing iniquity. And friends, let me say, I come here with the understanding that iniquity is abounding in the world. And Corinth, I suppose the world today, is very much like Corinth was all those years ago. And we have sin on every front. It's on our front door. As soon as we walk out the door, as soon as we get out the street, as soon as we are on the streets, it's there before our eyes. If you have a television, I don't own one anymore, but as soon as you turn it on, you see iniquity, you see sin. It's on every front. And the Lord Jesus, did he not warn in Matthew 24, 11, he says, many false prophets shall arise. And we have many false teachers today, don't we? Many who say that they are of Christ and they preach the truth, but they preach a, a, an easy Christianity, a broad road Christianity. Whereas you can be a Christian, you don't have to go to church, you can live a sort of self-styled kind of Christian life. But that is not the Christian life, is it? One has to question, is that person been saved? And if they've been saved, what have they been saved from? If they know different to the world, then you and I, we're not ignorant. But there's nothing new under the sun. 
And we're too all aware, aren't we, of the world's pull upon us. And we're too all well aware of many that have made a false profession and walk no more with the Lord. And we need to take heed. And so it comes as a word, I trust this morning, of exhortation. This does not, I do not bring a word of admonishment to you at all, but I bring a word of encouragement and warning and exhortation to me as well as to you. And he says here, we then, verse 1 of chapter 6, as workers together with him, that is Christ, beseech you that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he hath said, I've heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Now what many modern preachers do today is they take these words at the end of verse 2, be, behold now is the accepted time, behold now is the day of salvation. And perhaps you've heard men say this. And what are they doing? They're taking a verse that is meant for Christians. And we'll look at this verse in its Old Testament setting. What Paul is doing here in verse 2 is he is quoting from Isaiah 49, which we read earlier. And that has nothing to do with the unbeliever. But those words convey how the Father helped the Son in the days of his flesh. And we will think on how salvation, of course we are saved by grace through faith, we are saved in time, but salvation is something that we are experiencing even now as Christians. It's not just something that happened to us, but we are in salvation. And so what many do is they take these words, receive not the grace of God in vain, And they take these other words, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So what you've got with a lot of modern evangelical preachers is they will pressure and they'll say, now, you better be saved now. Make a decision. And so what they've got is somebody that has made a decision. But there's been no work of God's spirit in that person's soul. And that person is as lost as ever, is unregenerate as ever. As we will see those words are words quoted from the Old Testament and have to do with the strengthening of the Lord Jesus by the Father in the days of his flesh. Now first of all, doctrine. I'm mindful that I've already run long on my time, but we'll try to fit in what we can this morning with the Lord's help. Now to understand, first of all, this we have to understand doctrine. Look when he says, we then as workers together with him beseech you that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Is he saying here in verse 2 that Christians, that these people here can lose their salvation, that you can have the, the grace of God one minute and then lose it? Is he saying that? I suggest to you he's not saying that. When he says here, receive not the grace of God in vain, what we need to understand is when God saves us, as we will see. If you just turn with me to John chapter 1. When God saves us, of course he saves us by grace, but then in that grace, there is more grace that flows to the believer, like an endless river that flows to us. John chapter 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him, was not anything made that was made. Speaking of Christ there, who is the Word, the eternal Logos. And then you come to verse 14, and the Word was made flesh. 
and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full notice of grace and truth. He was full of grace and truth. And you come down to the verse 16. And he's speaking here of believers. And of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. The Christian continues while he's saved by grace to receive more grace. Sustaining grace, keeping grace. In fact, the Bible is called the word of grace, as we will see. And so the Christian, when he is saved, of course he's saved by grace, but he has at his disposal the riches of God's grace in Christ Jesus. Now it is all important to see this. And we must understand that the Christian can never receive saving grace in vain. So Paul is not speaking here about saving grace. He says, receive not the grace of God in vain. He's not saying, oh, you can receive saving grace in vain. Once saved, we believe the believer is saved. He said, my sheep hear my voice, John ten twenty seven, and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Never. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand, said the Lord Jesus. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And friends, we have to believe what the scriptures say. He shall see the travail of his soul. What was that travail of his soul? At Calvary, at the cross, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. The Son of God would be eternally sorrowful and dissatisfied if one of his sheep were lost. Lost. They could never be. He shall be satisfied because he shall justify them. For my righteous servant shall justify many. But you know, when we saved, more grace comes to us. Like a river. We believe in that doctrine, don't we, of irresistible grace. You think of that acronym, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Or I like to say even preservation of the saints. We persevere because we preserve, don't we? To the very end. Now you think of that marvellous verse, Romans 8.30. For whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate. And then Paul goes on to say, for whom he did predestinate, them he also did call. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justifies, he glorifies. It's that unbreakable chain of five. So that salvation from beginning to end is of Almighty God. And yet, while we are saved by grace, as I said, when he saves us, we receive of his grace and more grace. Grace for grace, as John tells us. His people are made willing in the day of his power. And they will come, every one. But we can be stubborn sheep. And we can live below our privileges as Christians. That's what the Corinthians were doing. They were receiving the grace of God in vain. They were children of grace. It's like this. They were not using the means of grace. What are the various means of grace? The word. Prayer. As we would think. These various things. Now, this morning, you must be assured as a Christian that the new birth is irreversible. You can't reverse it. Whoever is in Christ is a new creature. Salvation 
cannot be lost. And I know there are some verses that might give the impression that we can lose our salvation. But let me suggest to you, very often, those verses are very badly studied. Let me give you another classic example. Hebrews 2, 1. The Apostle Paul is clearly writing to believers there. And he says, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we've heard. You've heard them. Bear in mind what he's saying. You've heard the things. So now, he says, give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. The Greek word there is a, it's a nautical word. And it's the idea of a rope slipping through your hand. And if you don't keep a tight grip on them, they will slip. Now, the Christian will always heed the warnings of Scripture. Always. So he will take heed. And then he says, for if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, and then he says this, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Well, you won't escape, because there is no other salvation. Now, what is the lesson? Is Paul saying that the Christian will fall? He's not saying that. He's saying, it's a warning. And every Christian is kept by the warnings. But how often have I heard preachers take that verse, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Paul is not addressing the unbeliever. He says, you give the more earnest heed to the things that you've heard, you've believed. My friend, when God saves, he quickens. And he irresistibly draws. And he shuts in the believer. Just like he shut in Noah in the ark. And they will never be separated. But you see, here's the thing. You take a verse like that and you apply it to the unbeliever. You rob the believer of a truth that he needs to hear. It's vital, isn't it? We don't take from one and give to the other at the expense of the church. So, without any further delay, let's come back to the text here. Where he says, let us not receive the grace of God in vain. When a soul is saved, my friends, God supplies, as it were, a continuous abundance of grace. But we can, sadly, because of what we call indwelling sin. Live as children, and I give you this analogy. Imagine living by a river and it's full of salmon and yet you choose to live out the dustbin. That's how we can be as Christians. And that's how these were. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said concerning this, he said, this is true communion when the sap of grace flows from the stem of the branch and when it is perceived that the stem itself is sustained by the very nourishment which feeds the branch, as we day by day receive the grace from the Lord Jesus and more constantly recognize it as coming from him, we shall behold him in communion with us and enjoy the felicity of communion with him. Let us make daily the use of our riches and ever repair to him as our own Lord in covenant taking from him the supply of all we need with as much boldness as men take money 
from their own purse. He says, Christ has grace without measure in himself, but he hath not retained it for himself. As the reservoir empties itself into the pipes, so hath Christ emptied out his grace for his people. Oh, the fullness we have all received. And grace for grace, he says. Brethren, we have need of his grace. And this is why Paul says here, receive not the grace of God in vain. You have been saved by grace, but there's more grace. They're living outside, as it were, of their privileges and the power that God has given them. We sap ourselves, don't we? If we spend too much time in the world, we sap ourselves of Christ. We're coming to his word and drinking from him. You notice, grace is the great theme of all the epistles, isn't it? Paul begins even this letter, he says, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father. And in fact, many of the epistles begin with grace and end with grace. And how we need the grace of God, my friends. So, this is an encouragement to you, I trust. Now, so important for us all here, as we come to these things, and as we ponder this next verse, I want you to see as we turn, as Paul now, he thinks upon the next verse. And I want you to notice the conjoining word. He says, We then as workers together with him beseech you that also ye receive not the grace of God in vain. And then he says, For. And whenever we find a for, we can say it's a conjoining word. He's joining to what he's just previously said, and he's applying it for. Because, here's the reason. He hath said, I've heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored, helped, succored or helped thee. Now if you read, behold now is the accepted time. And behold now is the day of salvation. What is he saying? You are in salvation. You're enjoying it. And this is the joy of your salvation. The Lord who will strengthen you. If you just turn to Isaiah 49. One, there's that passage that I read. And uh, in Isaiah we know that there are four servant songs. And they all speak of Christ, the servant of the Lord, who will come and who will give his life as a ransom for many. And who will suffer and he will die. And he's spoken of here as a polished shaft. He's in the quiver of the Lord. And the Lord will take him out just at the right time. Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken ye people from afar. The Lord hath called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother. He hath made mention of my name. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me. This could only be said of our Lord, not of the prophet Isaiah, and made me a polished shaft. It is quivered, he hid me, and said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And then we read of the dismay or the discouragement of the Lord when in the days of his flesh, then I said, I have laboured in vain, I have spent my strength for naught, and in vain, yet surely my judgment, and that word can also be translated, my deliverance is with the Lord. And my work with my God. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant. To bring Jacob again to him. Notice verse 6. He said, it is a light thing that thou shouldest be made my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. And then he says, notice 6b, I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles. It's unmistakable that it's speaking of the Lord Jesus. And in the days of his flesh, well, he suffered. He suffered particularly there in the Garden of Gethsemane, didn't he? As he swept great drops of blood to the ground. 
And yet we read, notice verse 7, Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, his Holy One to him, whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and rise, princes also shall worship because of the Lord that is faithful unto the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and a day of salvation have I helped thee. And I will preserve thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth. The Lord was strengthened by the Lord. This is a tremendous thought for us, isn't it? We read there in Luke twenty-two forty-three, how when the Lord was there and the disciples were there, Peter, James and John were with him in that garden and even Judas has gone out to betray him, how he sweat as it were great drops of blood. And we read there, and there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. The Lord came and succored our dear Lord in the days of his flesh. And then we read in Hebrews 5, don't we? How it says there, who in the days of his flesh, verse 7, he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong cryings and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Imagine that. He had a filial fear for the Father. The Father heard him. Because although he was suffering such agony, knowing all that he would have to suffer and endure on the part of his people, he cried out and the Lord succored him. And he will succor us. That's the lesson, isn't it? This is why Paul says, don't receive the grace of God in vain. If he helped Christ, will he not help you? If Christ died for you, will he not help you, child of God? He will. Of his fullness, ye have all received grace for grace. So friends, we are to be as Bereans. All these modern, I'm not condemning all seminaries, but you know when they say to young men, well, you can just pick a verse and make it evangelical, make it apply to whoever you want, that can do great damage, can't it? Great harm. To the believer. Some people say well it can be universal. But we're not given license for that. And let me say this. Salvation as I close. Is something that we're in. Even now we haven't received the full. Consummation of it. This is what Paul says in Romans 13.11. He says and knowing the time. That now is high time to awake our sleep. For now is our salvation. Nearer than when we first believed. We haven't received it in its fullness. We're in it. But we're being saved. We're being saved from what? Self, sin, the world, the devil. All kinds of things. Saved from this present world. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8 He says, Whom having not seen you love him, though now you see him not yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. That'll be when you see him. When it's all be over. But he's given you all the grace you need. All the grace I need. There's so much more I've prepared, but time doesn't permit. But I just want to close one or two points. Let me make some closing remarks and application. 
Firstly, to receive the grace of God in vain means that we don't live by the grace that God has as we can approach his throne of grace. To help in time of need. Is this what we says to the Hebrews? Let us have boldness. In what? Ourselves? No, Christ. Because we come by grace. To help find help in time of need. Any time of need. Whatever your need is, child of God. Whatever your trial is. He will give grace. And the burdens get stronger and harder. He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiply trials, he multiplies peace. Never will he forsake us. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, ere the day is half done, we reach the end of our hoarded resources. Our Father's forgiving is only begun. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Now my friends, Paul had to write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6. After many of them were being robbed. He says, dare you take anyone to court? And then he says, no you're not. No adulterer, no idolater, no fornicator, no unclean person, no effeminate shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. And he says, such were some of you. But you're washed. You're cleansed. One thing, one of the reasons why we don't live out of grace so often is we forget the grace that saved us. They were to reflect, this is how you were. Look at these people in Corinth, that's how you lived. Look at the people of Falmouth. We don't look down upon them, but we look in pity and we say, this was me. I was lost. How can I go back to them? I don't want to receive it in vain. I want to live out this life for the glory of God and thank him. We do that. But then there are the means of grace that we neglect. I alluded to this. It's called the word of his grace. When Paul bids his farewell to the elders at Miletus in Acts 20, he said, I've labored. He said, and for, I've ceased not to warn everyone day and night. But he said this, for three years I was with you. And then he says in verse 32 of Acts 20, but brethren, now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. The word of his grace. You see, when we neglect the word, we neglect the greatest means of grace. What about fellowship? What about the Lord's Day? These are precious means of grace. Don't receive the grace of God in vain, ever. Worship when we sing, how often the verse touches us. Our hearts are moved and we're made to see things perhaps we've never seen before. Now we see them again. It comes with a sense of freshness. Paul says, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Yes, thanks. And power. Let us not live below our privileges, brethren. Let us not receive the grace of God in vain. Today is the day of salvation. We're in it. And praise God, he might save someone. And for them, it'll be the day of their salvation. But let us say we're in salvation. You see, the, the thing is this. If you're saved, this is salvation. 
You don't look back on some past experience and say, well, I was saved, I signed a card, I did this, I was baptized. No, I'm saved. I'm saved from this world, saved from my old life. Now for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The outward body is perishing. But friends, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and see the fullness of that salvation. May God embolden us at his throne to produce love to his name. Paul says to Timothy, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Amen.